Hi, I'm Marilyn Freeman. I'm an alcoholic. Really happy to be here. Grateful to Charlie and the rest of the committee for the invitation to participate in this wonderful convention. And uh, certainly am grateful to my hostess, Danielle, for going about 700 miles beyond any length last night. I think she deserves a hand. <laughs> I was listening to her recount our uh, experience last night, and you may wonder why I was invisible for a while. Well, I've, this amazing program has kept me sober now for uh, over 28 years, and uh, I have been reprogrammed, actually bludgeoned into knowing that I must take direction and do what I say I'm going to do. So. I said, I will meet you at the gate, and I meant literally, I will meet you at the gate. So I got off the plane, and no Danielle, so I just stood there at the gate and uh, uh, called her telephone number, called Charlie, and I was told by Joe, Danielle's, uh, uh, what is he? Beyonce. <laughs> Somebody at her house was named Joe. And, uh, <laughs> She's on the way, so I stayed there at the gate. Now, what I did not know was that there were security guards beyond the gate that would not allow anybody except people with plane tickets to come back to the gate. So she was outside the gate and I was inside the gate. And we did that for a while until I got so thirsty that I broke free of the gate and uh, went to get something to drink. And uh, meanwhile, was bearing my chest to everybody because I was wearing my name tag. And uh, nobody was picking me up on that. Until finally, Danielle and Susie came along. And there we are. Where have you been? Where have you been? We both said to each other. And uh, by that time, it was well after midnight. And I thought sort of that the convention was next door. Uh, actually, within another city, another state, far away. <laughs> but anyway, it was it was wonderful, and you have to sleep fast at these conventions, and I know that. Uh, I am just astonished that anybody is awake this morning because we're all alcoholics, and uh, if we're not forced to go to work, uh, it's easy to sleep in, and uh, and I know that you made the sacrifice of getting up this morning but I have a soft voice I don't talk very loud so you can doze off and um, I might do that too <laughs> actually I've told you what I'm going to say I told you that this amazing fellowship has uh, kept me sober now for over 28 years I also told you that I'm an alcoholic and that's, that's the whole story I could stop at this point and you would know it you'd know everything I'm going to say uh, everything else that I add is an elaboration of that basic point because that's the miracle. We can't do that. Uh, there are scientists all over the world that are studying rats in cages, feed them alcohol and watch them, and uh, take lots of notes. And uh, science may one day accomplish a cure for alcoholism, but it hasn't done so yet. And yet we come together, uh, usually pretty depraved and insane and sick when we come together and yet uh, we uh, lift one another up bring one another back from the gates of insanity and death and uh, effect something that the great medical minds on earth seem not to be able to do it's funny that uh, any of us ever get in here uh, for a, a lot of years I certainly needed the, uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous but had no idea that that's what I needed. Never occurred to me in the beginning because I didn't drink, so it would not occur to me that Alcoholics Anonymous would do something good for me. I was just neurotic and strange and weird, and I lived in Ohio, and Ohio got the blame for it. <laughs> and that was because it was so wholesome, so normal. Green fields and happy people, contented cows, um, and it just made me feel so
so strange and so different because I could not join into that that rhythm that I saw there that looked so so good to me. Uh, I wanted to. I always wanted to have friends. I wanted to be in the rhythm of life. Wanted to be a part of the human race, but uh, just felt like I wasn't quite making it. There were two things that upset me, and one was being alone because I could see it was happening out there and I wasn't in it. And the other thing that upset me was being with people because they made me really nervous. They'd ask me intrusive questions like, how are you? (laughs) I tried, God knows I tried. Uh, What do they want from me? Okay, I'll tell them. 15 minutes of anxiety, I tell them, and then talk about depression for maybe 20 minutes and I'd look up and they had gone out square dancing with the other Ohioans <laughs> alone again and um, I was also capable of forming sick and hideous dependencies on people uh, and I liked that because uh, they would take care of me and I did that with members of my family because they have to let you do that and uh, I was put on earth with the idea that everybody else is here to take care of my every whim. Uh, You should spend 24 hours a day trying to make me happy and meet my every need. So I didn't have a lot of friends. Really had no friends. Um, But one day I busted out of Ohio and uh, went off to the big city, to Chicago, to study science. I'd given up on normal living in Ohio. And I thought, maybe, somehow, someway, if I could, could win the Nobel Prize, then I could be a happy person. If I could become a great scientist, then, uh, then I could pin a badge on my shirt, and, uh, and then everybody would say, oh, there she is. There's that scientist, Marilyn. We want to be her friend. And then I'd finally be a happy person. I got a job where I was going to school, and uh, and the person that gave me that job was a real scientist, and I could tell because he had a white lab coat on. <laughs> and he had a slide rule in his pocket. Now, you young people here, uh, a slide rule is an old-fashioned calculator. And, uh, Oh, I just I looked at him and I just wanted to grab and fondle his slide rule. <laughs> and I got a job. I got a job in that lab, and uh, we began to get acquainted. And uh, we used to go out to the, well, we called it the Little Mouse Place. Uh, it was a pizza joint. But it was next door to an exterminator, and they had a big pink neon mouse right over the door. And, uh, and we'd sit over pizza and uh, talk about Gegenbauer polynomials and Schrodinger's equation. And no man had ever talked to me like that before. <laughs> and soon uh, he said, you want to get married? And I said, yes, yes. And... Uh, now it's funny, his dad was a Lutheran minister and was going to marry us in a little ceremony back in Ohio and I was from a family of atheists. And uh, here I was in this little church, in this traditional ceremony, just uh, wondering about that because I had never participated in things like that and his dad seemed to be saying things like, do you, William, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, uh, for richer, for poorer, things like that, till death do you part. And um, he said, yes, yes I do. And apparently he meant it, because um, uh, he's a noble kind of guy, uh, believes in keeping commitments, doing what he says. He even told me one time, a person is as good as his word. And he lives that way. And he had absolutely no idea what he was agreeing to. None. And I heard those words, uh, and I said, yes, I do, but what I was thinking and what I meant was, now I can attach to you like a tick on a dog and drain out your life. (laughs) But 
I had to. Um, as I said before, I just, I love sick and hideous dependency. And, um, because that's, that's the only way I could live, just find somebody and attach. Uh, I did not have any common sense, didn't know the first thing about normal living, like filling out an income tax form or buying toilet paper, toothpaste, I mean, just these basic things that normal people know how to do. And I had shunned all of that. And uh, so Bill was locked into this very strange thing. Um, where I sort of dropped to the floor and grabbed his ankles and, and said, make me happy, make me happy. You don't love me, do you? I'm so miserable because you're not doing enough. And he said, well, what would you want me to do? And I said, take me skiing. And he'd say things like, okay, we'll go skiing. And then I'd say, no, no, because you didn't think of it first. <laughs> Now I wondered, why am I so miserable? And it was always the fault of people close to me. Uh, I got so disappointed in Bill that I stopped talking to him for two or three years. Um, now, he didn't notice. Uh, now I realize it was relief, but uh, after a while, uh, it began to get to me. Many years later, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I learned about resentment. I didn't understand about resentment. I thought I was punishing him, but these things were eating me up inside. Why am I so crazy? Why am I so miserable? By this time, we'd moved to California, and I was still, still had some hope for science. By this time, I had my own white lab coat, my own lab bench and set of test tubes, working in the lab on a research project. Um, but. When I did research, I seemed to break a lot of glassware and blow up things. <laughs> and I didn't know why that was happening. Uh, I sort of short-circuited uh, this whole process. I realized that I needed to get some positive results, and I wasn't doing it by my laboratory technique. So I... Uh, took the course that sort of comes naturally to me. I just began to make up a whole bunch of data. Now, you can't do that in science. You laugh? Yes. Um, most people understand that. Science is like Alcoholics Anonymous, based on rigorous honesty. But uh, I just uh, went for it. Made up a whole bunch of numbers that looked right to me, and I thought, I'm safe as long as I don't publish this. Um, but I wasn't safe. I was not safe from myself. When I began to do that, I knew that I was a fraud. And, uh, and I was a fraud in everything. You see, I wanted, to, I wanted friends. I wanted you to like me. I wanted everybody to like me. I always wanted the approval of everybody on earth. And I try to look at you and think, what do you want me to be? What is that? And I'd try to guess, and then I'd make it up as I went along. And I believed it as I was telling you the story. Uh, I mean, I, one time I was on a bus, and uh, I was trying to make friends with the woman next to me because I desperately needed her approval. I wanted her to be my friend for life. And I began to tell her that I had many academic degrees. And she was not brightening up, and I thought, this isn't doing it. What does she want from me? I want her to be my friend. And I thought, I'll try a more exotic tale. And I told her that I was a Polish princess. And she brightened up. And I thought, this is it. This is what she wants me to be. Now she's going to be my friend. And I told her about the escape from Poland. And I had been living off family jewels for a long time. And, uh, and then she said, you're Polish? I'm Polish, and began speaking Polish. <laughs> it is so hard to fake a foreign language. <laughs> so here I was in the lab, uh, making up my way, and uh, feeling crazier than ever. And. I think what depressed me the most was that I was getting my if-onlys, and that's a bad thing for an alcoholic. 
it's hard to be frustrated and not get those things that you always wanted. Although I don't think any of us know what we really want. We just know that we're not getting it. But uh, I had these if only. If only I could meet and marry a scientist. If only I could work in a lab. If only I had a research project. And I had those things and felt worse than ever. Then that's a time to worry because I had lost hope by this time. I didn't know what was going to fix me. I probably would have killed myself, but I'm so cowardly that uh, I was just kind of enduring, waiting, waiting for something to change. And it wasn't changing. It was getting worse. And uh, I went into a thing. Uh, the, the theme of this conference is the realm of the spirit. And uh, for me, the first entrance into something that changed my life once and for all was the realm of the spirit. And for me, that happened at Shaky's Pizza Parlor because they brought me great big mugs of beer. And uh, I'd gone there with my lab mates and that changed my life. Once I found beer, it was as if those promises in the big book came through for me. Uh, people had frightened me. I didn't know how to talk to them. They always ran away from me. And after I drank five or six mugs of beer, I felt like I am one with the universe. I can talk to anybody. I was kind of slurring it, but I could talk to them. <laughs> and it was peace of mind in five minutes. Uh, I found that other forms of alcohol could do it too. Uh, lab alcohol. In those days, the beds were not quite as careful as they are now. And uh, I just break those little seals and uh, add it to 7-Up from the vending machine and talk my lab mates into party time every day. Then we'd go out to bars after work and drink. Uh, that Those hours between 8 a.m. and 5 were hard, so I moved about 17 cases of beer into the lab. <laughs> stuffed them in the cold room and moved into the cold room. I don't like to be cold, but it's a small price to pay to be near my beloved beer and um, enjoyed my work for years um, until the director asked me what I'd been doing there and I had no idea. And um, that seemed to be the end of my career in science. Uh, but it was uh, a funny thing. I had no idea that it was because of alcohol. Uh, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I didn't even realize that I drank because that was so necessary for living for me. For me, it was like breathing. It felt so good and it felt so bad when I stopped. Uh, so when I lost my job for uh, lack of any progress on any project, uh, I just uh, went home and wondered, how did it happen? As I said, it didn't occur to me that it was drinking any more than it occurred to me that it was breathing. I was doing both of those things because I needed to drink. I needed to breathe. And now I was at home, strange, worried, and uh, very, uh, well, I guess you would say paranoid. Um, like I'd look at the Venetian blinds and I just knew that people were walking up and down the street, peeping in, wondering about that insane woman sitting there on the couch. The scariest thing was the Grim Reaper, this strange figure that approached, came up on the doorstep, kind of a hooded form, and I knew that he was coming to get me, and then he had retreat. And he seemed to come every day, and uh, now I realize it was just the postman, but at the time it was scary. So I, I did what I came to understand in Alcoholics Anonymous was my first and only geographic. Uh, I got as far as my garage uh, because there was a refrigerator out there and so I just moved my beer into the refrigerator. Beer was always my favorite form of alcohol because I could drink that really fast. I was always real tense and that just got me to where I needed to be that peace of mind that allowed me to live on planet Earth without exploding. And, um, and I just sat there in the garage for quite a few years, uh, communing with ants. Um, I, it, it was funny, many years later I, I 
came to understand that uh, that that line, lowly companions, applied to my aunt. Uh, they were my only friends in those days, and they stuck by me. And I am, I don't kill them to this day because they were good to me. And uh, and I wondered about those little fellows. Uh, how could they how could they get it and I couldn't I mean I was supposed to be a scientist but they came in in these long chains they had friends they had jobs a sense of purpose and and I missed it all and these simple creatures got it uh, I wondered why there were so many of them and it was because in those days I couldn't even aim right and I'd open a can of beer and half the time it would go down my back because I'd miss my face um, and then it would evaporate all over the floor and leave behind these complex sugars that the ants were enjoying. And um, party time every day for those little critters. And so this was my life now. Um, but apparently I was coming into the house because our house was filling with small children. And they were mine. And, um, I think each one of us is built with a true self. This person at the center of our being that struggles to get out and that person is good is uh, wants to do right and that person was always there deep inside of me and now this person was struggling to get out to be a good mom I didn't want to sit out there in the garage knowing that I had these little kids in the house that needed a good mom I'd drink a can of beer to steady my nerves and go in and try to be a good mom and I'd think, okay, all right, today I'm going to count them. And they started moving real fast. And uh, another can of beer just to focus my vision. And uh, by that time, I'd be coming out of a blackout and um, wondering how it went so terribly wrong one more time. One time I was moving from one room to the next, and there was a small one, an infant in my arms. I was trying to hold my hand over her head so that it wouldn't hit the wall as I bounced off. And uh, what has become of me? And by this time, even I was beginning to notice. I was thinking, I'm drinking way too much. I've got to cut back. But when I cut back, it was like not breathing. It made me feel so bad and so tense. And I couldn't be a good mom while I was so tense. And that was the rock and the hard place. I could not be a good mom on the natch without drinking because I was far too crazy, far too tense. I couldn't be a good mom if I was drinking because I'd come out of a blackout at four o'clock in the morning and wonder where the kids were, knowing that I'd seen them in the bathtub filling up with water. I'd run into the bathroom, empty bathtub. Okay, I escaped one more time, but I've got to cut back on my drinking. One time I came in from the garage and there was a, a really big one in the house. And I wondered about that and kind of focused my eyes and saw that it was my mother-in-law. And she had been there for a long time. And the kids were fed and happy. And there was a happy home life going on inside the house, and I was not a part of it. And I was that mangy old critter out in the backyard by this time. And, uh, and they were taking care of me. That was the only way that I knew how to function. Just find people that will take care of me. I was uh, a protected alcoholic. There were always kind people in my life. One day, I, uh, a light bulb went on in my brain when I was, many years later, listening to stories in Alcoholics Anonymous and thought, gosh, if I'd had a story like some of my friends, I would have felt a little bit better. I mean, I've had friends tell their stories and it curls the hair on your head. Uh, as a kid being forced to live down in the basement and every day an uncle would come downstairs and beat you with a cat of nine tails and uh, I just thought wow if I had a story like that I would have been able to blame somebody I would say that's why I felt so bad I had people that mistreated me horribly but um, I was always surrounded by, by people who were kind to me that gave me opportunities that took care of me and that was back in the 60s when I was living out there in the garage. And uh, people were kind of ashamed of female alcoholics. They were, uh, that was before Betty Ford, before there were good treatment centers. And uh, nobody quite knew what to do with, with, with people like us. 
and I was uh, like the mangy old dog. But my mother-in-law talked to me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and that put the, the fear into me, and I'll tell you. I was afraid of her, I resented her, but I wanted her approval because I wanted everybody's approval. When she got tired, she moved out and my mother moved in. So it was always a series of grandmas taking care of things, doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And, uh, and it was because of them that I ventured into Alcoholics Anonymous to get their approval, to get the heat off. I came first in 1969, but my, my uh, sobriety date is February 8, 1972. When I came to the program, I heard things that did not sound right to me. I heard the word God. I told you I came from a family of atheists, and uh, I didn't believe in, in God at all. I tested God, because you hear about God back in Ohio. But I found God wanting. My test for God was, if you're there, I'm willing to get to know you. Uh, please give me a sign and uh, prove to me that you're there. And if you're really there, then get to work for me. Now, I didn't word it like that, of course, but that was the way I tested God. And I had a big test for God. When I was uh, 10 or 11 years old, my dad was involved in a, a horrible automobile accident. And he was in a coma. And he lay there, and the doctor said, there's not much hope for him. But I tested this Ohio God big time. I said, if you're there, heal my dad. And I'd heard that this God can do anything, bring people back from the dead, part great bodies of water, um, certainly heal the sick. So I said, if you're there, make my dad well. And I watched my dad for signs. And he had one reflex. As we walked into his room, big tears would come down his cheek. And I talked to the my mom and I talked to the doctor, and the doctor said, that's just a reflex. Uh, doesn't really mean too much. We don't, don't hold out much hope for him. But I kept praying, and we went back every day for a while, then every week, then every month, and, uh, and I lost faith over the years. And after 10 or 12 years, he died without ever coming out of his coma. And I had certainly lost faith and all hope that there is a supernatural being that's interested in us died with my dad. And here I was in Alcoholics Anonymous saying, what I thought people were saying was, you must find God and then God will allow you to stop drinking and do something for you. And you have to have faith in God. That's what I heard because uh, I was listening for myself. I sat in the back of the room, of course, came in after the meeting began so I wouldn't have to interact with people. Uh, every now and then somebody would catch me before I could get away. And I was always being taken into this big active group out in Southern California, the Pacific group. And I didn't like the Pacific group because it reminded me of Ohio with happy people and lights. And I'd go to those meetings and I thought, man, I bet they're going to say the Lord's Prayer and then start square dancing any minute. Uh, scary. And go to dark, quiet meetings. And of course, it didn't work for me. Um, as long as I was going to meetings, I seemed to stay sober. But I didn't like to go to meetings. They made me anxious and crazy. I heard people talk about losing their jobs, about uh, children, and uh, guilt that they felt about those children. And it began to make me feel bad. I learned pretty quickly that I could not sit in a meeting and drink a can of beer because I wanted everybody's approval. And that was frowned on in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was sitting there on the match, not drinking, listening to these stories that made me feel bad, really bad, because I didn't even know the word identification, but that was pricking at all of those things that I felt so bad about. I needed to drink in the beginning, and then when I started drinking, I added on so many things that I needed to drink over that it was very hard to be sober, especially at AA meetings, to hear those things that I was hearing. 
So as a consequence, I retreated to my garage and uh, I drank off and on, testing the idea of controlled drinking. It's funny, with my tests anyway, uh, after having some exposure in Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard that thing, that if you have any doubt about being an alcoholic, just try some controlled drinking. So I tried that. And the funny thing is that it always worked for me. My test would be things like, only drink on airplanes. That's safe, because I rarely fly, or at least in those days, I rarely flew. Since that worked, I could give myself permission to have two drinks a day. And that, that always worked, too. So I could up it to six drinks a day. And then I'd be out in the garage with two cases of beer, wondering, why did it go wrong? And then I'd try a new test that always worked until it didn't work. Uh, it was a funny thing about uh, the insanity of alcoholism. After I started to drink again, too, what I believe is alcoholic insanity is that change of perception that told me that if it ever gets bad enough, I can go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, all I was doing was sitting in the garage and drinking, getting sicker and crazier all the time. Beer is an all-purpose drink. You don't have to eat anymore because it has so much sugar in it. Um, so I was turning yellow and all my hair was falling out, but I still thought that if it ever gets bad enough, I can go back to that fellowship of fanatics, but let's hope it never gets bad enough. Um, one day I made a prayer because I felt so sick. A friend, uh, Clint H., that speaks a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, says there are three kinds of prayers. Give me, um, help me, and use me. And... Um, Help me was my first prayer. Of course, I didn't believe in the supernatural God, but I prayed to the great God central office in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. It was a higher power for me because I was calling up saying, help me. And they sent out an angel, a 12-stepper, and she took me back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I explained, I, I have a couple of requirements here, Lorena. And she smiled and said, and what are they, Marilyn? And I said, well, I'd like to meet a person named Marion. Have you, do you know her? And she didn't know Marion. I said, that's, that's somebody that I, I saw before when I came to AA, when it didn't work for me. But I'd like to meet her because Marion had something I wanted. She was a radiant being, a creature of light. Uh, and she, she had the same kind of fears that I had. She told a story that I could believe in, but I'd never had enough courage to talk to her. But I asked Lorena if she knew Marion, and Lorena, my 12-stepper, did not know Marion. The other requirement I had for Lorena was, don't take me to the Pacific group. It's too scary. And so Lorena said, fine, we don't have to do that. Uh, but uh, I'll take you to a dark, quiet meeting. And sure enough, we were in a dark, quiet meeting, and that was good because I could sleep. And I slept through the first couple of speakers, and then there was a coffee break that made my head hurt terribly. Lorena stayed with me that day, and that prevented me from drinking, unfortunately. And I was feeling very bad. So I was glad when the coffee break ended, so I could settle down and maybe get some sleep. And I heard the leader say, and our main speaker tonight is Marion. And I looked up, and there was my Marion. And in my alcoholic haze, I had the thought, wow, this is an amazing coincidence. And I listened, and I heard my story. And afterwards, I ran up to the front of the room, dropped to the floor, and grabbed Marion's ankles and screamed, which would be my sponsor. And she said, yes, yes, she would, if I went to the meeting she went to. And... Uh, she got out a meeting directory and circled all the meetings in this big active group, the Pacific group. <laughs> and I explained to her that that doesn't work for me. I'm a quiet intellectual. I'm a scientist, Marion. And she agreed that I probably needed something else and then added, but I can't be your sponsor. And thank God I said, Marion, anything. By that time, I had the two things that I believe we need 
to make this program, and that is desperation. I've been desperate for quite a while, but now I had the gift of willingness. That willingness allowed me to say, Marion, I'll do even that, and she led me into this uh, amazing fellowship. I always wondered why I wasn't in the rhythm of life back in Ohio, and I began to understand that in order to be in the rhythm of life, I had to do the kind of stuff that Marion suggested, and that was change my whole way of life. The first, one of the first things was to begin to listen to other people. She got me to come to meetings early, and I said, Marion, I can't because I don't even know how to talk to people. I mean, what in the world if, if somebody says, how are you? What do I say? And Marion just looked at me and smiled indulgently, and she said, Marilyn, most people regard that as a greeting. I mean, they don't want to know. This is Alcoholics Anonymous, so please don't tell them. <laughs> just say, fine, how are you? And that worked. Everything that Marion told me was working for me. And I said, Marion, how do you know these answers for my life? I mean, I think about myself 24 hours a day, and I can't figure out how to live in this world, and you probably don't think about me more than eight hours a day. <laughs> how do you have these wonderful answers? And she said, Marilyn, it's because we're all so much alike, just basically all alike. And she was right. And I was doing what she told me, and she drew me into the whole triangle. Unity Recovery Service. She said, unity is the fellowship. Just get involved in the fellowship. Come to meetings early, stay late, listen to people. And she gave me quizzes, so I had to listen to what you said because I wanted Marion's approval so desperately, so desperately. I thought it was love, but I had attached. And Marion has a sense of her own being, so she'd just scrape me off her side and tell me to talk to a newcomer and then give me a quiz, so I had to listen to the newcomer. Um, she also got me involved in service, volunteering for things like the Southern California Convention. I was a hostess and greeter, and um, I hated that because I had to buy a big hideous blue moo, put on a name tag, and stand at the door and talk to people. And people scared me, really scared me. And I was standing at the door, kind of cowering, and the leader and founder of our group, the Pacific group, Clancy Eye, that uh, does a lot of speaking in AA, many of you have heard him talk. Um, came through the door and he looked at my name tag and he said, Pacific Group, you're giving our group a bad name. Why don't you try to simulate a smile while you're greeting people? And I thought, he has insulted me publicly. How dare he? And I stopped talking to Clancy for about 15 years. Now, like, like my husband, he didn't notice either. But, uh, Funny how things come away of going full circle in Alcoholics Anonymous. Clancy's been my sponsor for about 10 years. And um, that's good because he is far more active in Alcoholics Anonymous than I will ever be. And I learn so much from the example of others. Words are good. I like words. I listen to words. But what I believe is example. And uh, he sets an example of total commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's important that I see that, that I see people like the committee of this convention, because it lets me know it is safe to be very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's entirely safe. The people that are the most active are the ones that radiate the most joy, whose lives seem to have everything in it that they need. Uh, it is safe. The more I give to Alcoholics Anonymous, the more blessed I am. I don't think it's that I get those things that I always wanted, because I never knew what I needed. It's that I get what I need. My life is abundant as long as I am fully invested in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that began to come through AA service, like Southern California Convention, like volunteering for jobs at the meetings I went to. When I was told to take a job at every meeting, 
and I was supposed to go to seven meetings a week. I said, no, I can't do that. And I, I could see through it. I could, I could see through it because I thought, if I have a job at the meeting, I am really between a rock and a hard place. That's going to force me to go to that meeting. And if I have jobs at seven meetings, I have to go to seven meetings a week. I have to show up for those meetings. Or I have to call somebody on the telephone and ask them to help me and cover my commitment. And I was afraid to call people, especially to ask for help. So as I said, that was just one of those terrible dilemmas. But I wanted Marian's approval. So I took jobs at meetings. Little did I know that whatever I invest in Alcoholics Anonymous comes back to me tenfold, at least. I thought it was just to get me to go to those meetings. But what it was doing was reeling. It was allowing me to feel like this is my meeting. This is my fellowship. I am a part of this meeting. I have a place here. I have a seat here because I have a job here. It allowed me to make friends with the people I worked with. I had to be on committees, and I didn't have to think of things to say because we were busy counting the money in the seventh tradition if I was a part of the treasury. I was busy making coffee if I was a coffee maker. People were showing me how to make big pots of coffee. I was learning how to be a friend by just participating on the team. What I had no idea was happening was that I was also learning how to work. In those old days, when I went into that lab, I thought, I'm just going to try to do some super science and win a Nobel Prize and dazzle everybody and ignore what people are telling me to do. And of course, I kept blowing up things. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, that doesn't work. If you have a job, uh, you're supposed to do that job. I didn't know that at first until old-timers uh, saw me kind of ignoring my commitment. I was the coffee maker, and I came in late, and the coffee was already made, so I went over to bother the literature person. And again, uh, uh, Clancy pointed out that if my job is coffee maker, I should make coffee not bother the literature person. And uh, that just upset me uh, terribly that he found my character defects before I found them. <laughs> but I've told many newcomers these things that old-timers have told me, and they probably feel that way about me, but that saved my life. I said, one of the, the implications of all of this that I didn't even understand at the time, that I was learning how to work by taking these jobs in Alcoholics Anonymous. But getting involved in the fellowship and being of service, that was only two parts of the triangle. And then Marion introduced me to recovery. And that was scary because it, it involved God. And I had, as I said, given up on God. But Marion kept saying, just give lip service to it. And there were a lot of give me prayers. Help me prayers, help me to stay sober one more day. Uh, but also give me prayers. Uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. And these uh, prayers of uh, the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer began to get me to ask for things that are appropriate. I found that Alcoholics Anonymous is not about asking for a car or a camera or a good job or even being well. Uh, it's about deeper things. It's asking to have character defects taken away so that I can be of service to others. The things I'm allowed to ask for are ones that allow me to say to God, finally, use me. So this, these three prayers, help me, give me, use me, are the story of my recovery. In the beginning, I could only say, help, help me. And pretty soon I was saying, give me. Give me so that I can be of service, so that I can be a full participant in Alcoholics Anonymous. Give me the courage to get up to the podium and talk. In the beginning, I couldn't even say my name. I just shook to pieces if I had to stand up in front of people. Public speaking was not for me. And uh, I had to say, 
please give me energy so I can get to my meeting, so that I could be a member of my family, ultimately so that I could be of use to others. One day, after years went by, a light bulb went on in my brain that I had thought that I had to win a Nobel Prize uh, ever to have friends. I found out that I was winning the Nobel Prize, and that Nobel Prize is sobriety, of course. It is the noblest of all prizes for us. Everything stems from that. And after I had done those things that Marianne had suggested, that old-timers had suggested, the light bulb went on and I realized that as long as I speak the language of the heart, as long as I listen to you, as long as I am trying to get interested in what you need, especially newcomers, one alcoholic carrying a message to another, listening to the pain of another, sharing experience, strength, and hope, I feel like I have all the friends I need. Mostly it's because I don't think about it. As long as I respect you, as long as I try to be your friend, then I am relieved of that hideous bondage of what do you think of me? You don't like me, do you? You really think I'm weird. And in the end, I look around and realize that I do have friends for the first time, my home group, and that feeling extends to the whole world. I can walk into a crowd and feel like I am at home here because Alcoholics Anonymous reprogrammed me to listen to you, to respect you. I worried about things at home, these intractable problems. I don't know my husband. I feel horrible guilt about my children. I want to go back to work, but I couldn't solve these problems. I wanted you to solve these problems for me. So I'd say, what do I do? I don't know my husband. How do I talk to him? And I was given a few hints, like, don't drop to the floor and grab his ankles and scream, you don't love me, you don't love me. Stop torturing that man. Don't say that. Say things like, what would you like for dinner, sweetie? And I've never known that language before. Um, I was learning a whole new way of talking to my husband. And uh, he had answers for things like that. Like he'd say, pizza. And um, then I'd say, call a friend on the program, how do you make pizza? And they'd give me a number to dial, Pizza Hut. <laughs> so I was learning these, these things. And little by little, though, I was learning through practice, getting into action, changing my way of thinking, changing my whole life, listening to others. I learned how to listen to my kids by uh, listening to you so that I could hear their pain. As we began to grow up together, I first of all, I counted them, and there's only three of them. It seemed like there was a whole bunch because it's hard to count in those early days. But uh, two girls and a boy, and uh, we grew up together. And I listened to them like I listened to my newcomers, and I heard their pain, and uh, heard uh, little Susie say, my boyfriend was standing in front of Rocky Horror Picture Show with another girl. And uh, I said, Susie, if you can live through the night and put a few days together, you'll come to understand that Tom is a jerk. And, uh, I'm happy to say that she did that. And um, in this last year, all well, in fact, it's been two or three years ago, all three of them walked down the aisle with mates of their choices, not jerks, really wonderful, wonderful human beings. And our family grew from three kids to six. And uh, in this last year, it grew again because our two daughters gave birth to our first two little grandsons. And I'm a grandmom. I thought that would never happen to me. And, uh, and it did. I wasn't present when my kids were born. <laughs> Hardly knew what was happening. And yet this, this God that I came to know in Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, says you can have another chance uh, if you want it. And I wanted it, and I was given another chance. I think that this is a God of second chances, third chances, seventh chances, until we get it. And I was very present when this, this little first grandson was born. I was in the room with him when he came into the world. And I have enjoyed participating in that little guy's life 
and then another one came along. Never thought I'd go back to work, and when the time was right, the director of that old lab called and offered me a job, and I didn't know how that, that happened. And uh, yet, uh, I was able to go back to that lab and make living amends there. But I still broke glassware and blew up things. And I thought, this is not good. This is not a good podium story. And uh, what it was, was that I was sober and I had the feedback of sobriety now. And I could sense that I'm not cut out for research. And I went back to school and learned another profession, library and information science. And I've been working in that profession ever since, a medical librarian or somebody that works with computers. There's always a lot of information. And I am an alcoholic and I always want more. And this is the information age, and there's just not enough of it for me ever to consume, so I'm happy. Because <laughs> every day there's more and more information. Um, but as I said before, Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to work um, by asking the boss, what do you want me to do? If you ask the boss that, the boss will usually say. And if I do that, I get a paycheck, I don't get fired, I get along with my coworkers. And I learned that here. I think probably about somewhere along the way, after I took the steps, the veil parted, and God peeked out. And I said, my gosh, you've been there all along, haven't you? That amazing coincidence of Marianne at my first meeting, being taken into the Pacific group where I would get custodial care, by that activity, 24 hours a day. All of these things that I so needed, you were there all along. But I could only understand it after I had taken the steps. Then I understood step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. This spiritual awakening taught me what I should have heard back in Ohio when I heard Bill's dad say those amazing words. Love is not attaching like a fungus on a tree. Love is something deeper. It's what we learn in Alcoholics Anonymous. Love is commitment, being here for you in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. It's uh, about listening to you, about loving you. If I do that, then I realize that I have a place in the universe, that I am loved by you, I am loved by God. Thank you.